Hello and welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. Uh, thanks for being here. Before I get started, I want to point, uh, point out to you a great online conference that's going on right now. The Anselm Society is hosting their yearly Imagination Redeemed conference. It's so great already. Each day, uh, now until May 8th, they're going to be posting a new talk in the morning. And then in the evening, there's a live Q&A with the speaker for that day. For instance, today, S.D. Smith, author of the Green Ember series, is talking about making our art, even when we feel like we can never measure up to our, you know, artistic heroes. Like saying, ah, what's the point of even writing a story? It's never going to be as good as The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but there are good reasons to write. We, we need new stories all the time. Uh, so the conference is only $35 for all of the content. So don't miss it. Uh, go to imaginationredeemed.com to register for that. Okay, on to this week's episode. So, one of the things I love about Scripture is that the more you look at it, the more there is to see. With Scripture in particular, there are so many little motifs running through it that are endlessly generative. And one I was reminded of this morning is this, uh, you become like what you worship motif. Uh, we have sayings like, you are what you eat. And, and that points to something we all understand at some basic level, that we take into ourselves food. And then that becomes our material makeup. And that's this kind of outward physical level. And then on the inner level, phrases like, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. That makes sense to us. Um, you know, be careful what you put in there because it'll seep down and it'll contaminate the water table. And eventually it'll work its way into your bloodstream and it'll change. It'll change you. It'll make you sick. Scripture says that gossip and ingratitude and complaining are like that. Really all sin is like that. Um, there's just a basic level in which our existence never comes just from us. Life is always a thing received from outside of ourselves. No one can survive very long without receiving the life of just plants and animals and sunlight and water and so on. In that sense, individualism simply doesn't align with even our most basic experience of reality. So this week, I'm thinking about how Jesus gives us himself to take into ourselves in worship. Uh, what does that mean? And, uh, and how does that make us more human? So, here is this week's episode, You Are What You Worship. This morning I was reading Psalm 135. And in the last third of the psalm, this motif shows up that I've noticed shows up all over Scripture. It's this, you become like what you worship thing. 
In the psalm, it goes like this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. Sounds familiar, right? This idea is all over the place in the Bible. I don't have room here to point it to the other instances, but maybe one of the first things that pops into your mind is what Jesus had a habit of saying at the end of most every parable and sermon he gave. I'll paraphrase. Have you got ears? Then listen carefully. Have you got eyes? Then look closely. In the West at least where I grew up, we usually thought of idols in abstract terms. For instance, popularity or career may become an idol. In many places around the world, though, the more concrete idolatry persists. Someone literally makes a little cast metal or plastic figurine that is placed in a certain room on a shelf where incense is burned to it and offerings and prayers are made. This is very common around the world to this day. So it might be worth outlining quickly how idolatry works. And I'll start by mentioning something that, even though I grew up in the church, I had never noticed till I was in my 20s when someone pointed it out to me. And that is the difference between the first two Of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is no other gods. And the second one is no idols. Isn't that fascinating? Why in the world are no idols and no other gods two separate commandments? Doesn't that seem redundant? But it's not. I think that, yes, every idol is a false god, but not every false god is necessarily a tool used for the practice of idolatry. Here's what I mean. Idolatry is a specific practice. In the ancient Near East, idolatry was based on the belief that the gods were not good or reliable And the only way to get them to do the right thing, or whatever you wanted them to do, was to either bribe them with offerings or twist their arm with magical procedures by which you might bind them to your will. Idolatry, then, is a particular set of practices, all based around the premise that a human can exercise power over the gods. In other words... It's a system of God manipulation. Idolatry gets its own prohibitive commandment because God is saying two things. Number one, I'm the real God. You can't bribe, bind, or manipulate me, so don't even bother trying. And number two, you don't need to because I'm good and trustworthy already. I have your best interests in mind even more than you do. 
Idolatry is a source of deep anxiety because it's based on trying to get help in an uncertain world from gods who are unreliable and who don't really love you anyway. Can you imagine what a relief that second commandment was to those people worn out by the anxiety of idolatry in Egypt? But that all seems far away. It's ancient history, right? But it really hit home for me when I realized I was using the phrase in Jesus' name at the end of my prayers as a magical procedure. That old pattern of distrust that gives rise to idolatry was still alive, just below my awareness. And I felt like if I said that phrase, God had to hear and respond to my prayers accordingly because I'd fulfilled the procedural requirements. This kind of thing is still popular today in the name it and claim it and word of faith movements, where it's taught that enough faith and the right words can create reality or get God to do this or that. It's the same old idolatry dressed up in new clothes, even clothes that look at first to be Christian clothes. It may seem silly, but saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer doesn't bribe or bind the real God at all. The truth is, we have zero leverage, no bargaining chips with God. We depend entirely on what Paul calls in Ephesians, God's good pleasure to save us. The only reason God listens, the only reason God cares for and saves us, is because He wants to. He's simply good and loves us, and we can trust Him. So Jesus shows up in the flesh. He has eyes that see and ears that hear and a mouth full of breath and words of life. And he is realistic about the situation he's entered into. He knows many of the people he will speak to have already been worshiping blind, deaf, and mute idols for so long that they've become blind and deaf to reality themselves with mouths that say more and more about less and less. And when he teaches, he tugs on this thread of an idea that is woven all through Scripture, this anti-idolatry motif, when he says, If you have ears, listen. If you have eyes, look closely. He's inviting them to worship him, to ascribe to the Lord the greatness due his name, If they will do this, they will be healed and become like him. They too, like Jesus and in him, will have eyes that see and ears that hear. Because you become like what you worship. In Psalm 135, what immediately follows the previous quote is the psalmist begging Israel the house of Aaron, the Levites, everyone who fears him, to praise the Lord. And that name, LORD, is in all caps, which means it's the specific, 
particularizing name of God. The psalmist goes from how idol worshippers will take on the likeness of the man-made blind and deaf idols they call upon, to pointing at one particular God, by name, who has differentiated himself as the only one capable of bringing dehumanized humans back into full vitality. Jesus identifies himself as that specific, particularized deity come in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God, that God, the only maker of heaven and earth, the God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the uncreated Son of the Father, who gave Moses the second commandment against idolatry. The whole destiny of humanity is summarized in Jesus. The reality is that Jesus invented humanity to be custom-fitted for himself at the Incarnation, to unite us to himself, and to draw us up into the life of the Trinity. Paul says in Ephesians that since Jesus has come, the great mystery has been made known to us, that is, the true destiny of humankind, the destination God had in mind before he created anything, it has been revealed. That is, to be with and like Jesus, the true human. We make idols that are less than us, and we become lessened by their likeness. But God created images like himself, which he fulfills at the Incarnation, and goes on to raise them to his likeness. Or as Lewis put it, the Son of Man became a man to enable men to become sons of God. To fix our eyes on him gives us back the eyes we had lost. To listen to him gives us ears again. To worship anything or anyone other than Jesus dehumanizes us. To worship Jesus makes us like him, fully alive and fully human. To close us out this week, here's a Christina Rossetti poem that uh, I think it can serve as a prayer that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and our true destiny in Him. Here's Christina Rossetti. Lord, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and souls to love and minds to understand and steadfast faces toward the holy land and confidence of hope and filial fear and citizenship where thy saints appear. Before thee, heart in heart, and hand in hand, and alleluias, where their chanting band, as waters and as thunders, fill the sphere. Lord, grant us what thou wilt, and what thou wilt deny, and fold us in thy peaceful fold. Not as the world gives, give to us thine own, 
inbuild us where Jerusalem is built, with walls of jasper and with streets of gold. And thou thyself, Lord Christ, for cornerstone. Along those lines, I think of the phrase in Scripture that God himself has become our salvation. Our destination and the fulfillment of our being is him. He is where we are headed to be with and like him. That's home. So let's keep on pilgrimage um, you know, toward our true home, friends. Uh, meanwhile, don't forget to check out imaginationredeemed.com. I think this conference will really encourage you. It's already been a big encouragement to me. And, uh, and that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. <laughs>